Wait, does the public know about this? No. A quick content advisory before we get started today. This episode includes discussion of sexual assault, so listener discretion advised. I'm Ben Caldwell. With me is Carrie Weta. Hello. And we are going to assess Carrie's knowledge. And again, just as a reminder, she is coming into this cold. She has not seen these practice items before. Now, for today's episode, Carrie, why do we have these exams? Law and ethics exams as well as clinical exams in mental health care. Oh, my goodness. I, it's kind of an existential question, I feel like. Um why are we here? <laughs> like, really, truly. I mean, my understanding of it is that we we have them because it seems like somebody should test that we're good at this before they hand us a license and say, you're a therapist now. Um, but I'm not sure what the real answer is. Well, before I get to the the real, and I'll put that in air quotes, answer, don't lots of people test us on how good we are before licensure? Like you take a ton of tests in graduate school in various forms. You have yeah. thousands of hours of supervised experience and you have clients who are either getting better and through them getting better, you build confidence or not. Right. Don't you already take a ton of tests along the way? I mean, I think so. <laughs> But I usually they don't ask my opinion about whether I feel like I've been tested enough. <laughs> well, that's fair. The answer that comes from exam developers and from licensing boards is that these exams exist to protect the public. And that's what licensing is all about anyway. It's to protect the public from uh, unsafe practice. If you look at professional licensing sort of writ large, it's to uh, protect the public from exploitation by people who are in these fields that require a certain level of expertise. Most people in the general public have no idea how to do that job. And so without the benefit of licensure and the ability to revoke somebody's license if necessary, somebody in that field could really take advantage of unsuspecting consumers. It could do a lot of harm. So you have licensure for that reason to protect the public. And licensing boards and exam developers will say that these exams exist to provide kind of an objective standard that helps protect the public by differentiating who is going to be safe for independent practice from those who are going to be unsafe for independent practice. And you can argue, as I do and will, that that doesn't always work very well. But the, the fundamental principle, let's make sure that the public is safe, like that I can understand. That's a good lead-in to our practice question for today. Are you ready? Oh, gosh, yes. Buckle up. Let's go. A 36-year-old client initiates therapy and reports that the previous night she went on a date with a man she had met online. After dinner, he raped her and then dropped her off at home as if nothing happened. She tells the therapist that she spent the night in the emergency room and is afraid to go home because her assaulter knows where she lives. Which of the following actions should the therapist initially take in this crisis situation? A. Reestablish the client's feelings of control to reduce her sense of victimization. B. Evaluate the client's support systems to identify a safe place for the client to stay. 
C, develop the client's trauma narrative of the event to desensitize emotional impact. Or D, encourage the client to file a police report to protect other women from the perpetrator. And for what it's worth, this is a crisis management question that basically says that in the question from the current California BBS exam handbook for the MFT clinical exam. So from previous uh, questions, previous episodes of this podcast, I have learned (laughs) that it is important that it says crisis situation in that question. Mm -hmm. Uh, The end of that question says, which of the following actions should the therapist initially take in this crisis situation? It could have said, what should the therapist do? It, It could have been something like that. It could have said, how should this therapist conceptualize the case, right? Right. Um, but it didn't. It said, it says, which of the following actions should the therapist initially take in this crisis situation? Right. So they're telling you it's a crisis management question. It's not a treatment planning question. It's not a diagnosis kind of question. You can see in the question there, and you're seeing that quite rightly, that this is all about how do you address the crisis? Let's take a look at the first one. Reestablish the client's feelings of control to reduce her sense of victimization. Mm, I think that's a really good thing to do. That's definitely a a really good thing to do. Uh, Okay. B, evaluate the client's support systems to identify a safe place for the client to stay. Yeah, also also really important. Uh, C, develop the client's trauma narrative of the event to desensitize emotional impact. Ooh, okay. I my gut says, yeah, that's that's probably a great thing to do. Um if this question was more about like what what how should I deal with this case in general? Mm-hmm. I, I that might be one of my choices. Um but because this is a crisis situation, right now I'm going to say probably not it, but I'm going to come back to that. And finally, encourage the client to file a police report to protect other women from the perpetrator. Yeah, that's probably also a really good thing. Uh, Definitely also a really good thing to do. Um, Definitely I've heard news stories about things like this happening where, uh, you know, it's coming to light that a certain man, like, you know, was doing things like this in a serial manner. So probably also a good thing to do. So I'm looking at four things that are probably a good thing to do. Uh, None of them I'm ready to just be like, that's stupid. Wouldn't do that. Uh, That's obviously wrong. So that makes this more difficult. So then I go back to the question and I'm saying, okay, crisis situation. What is the, what are the crises here? Uh, The crisis is obviously probably um, a a very important thing is her state of mind or state of uh, emotion, her emotional state. Like she's probably not doing great. Um, So I, that's why I do see the wisdom in reestablish the client's feelings of control to reduce her sense of victimization. That's answer A. I understand why that would be a really good thing to do right away Um, or or at least pretty quickly. That's pretty soon. I'm not sure if that's the first thing to do. Um, Why is it important whether or not it's the first thing to do? Because this says which of the following actions should the therapist initially take in the crisis situation? Yeah, that. Um, thank you. That word initially can be very important when you see it. That's a key word to focus in on when it shows up. Because if you get a question that asks, what should you do or what should the therapist do first? What Mm -hmm. should the therapist do next? 
What should the therapist do immediately? Mm -hmm. What should the therapist do initially? Those are all things that can call on you in looking at these response choices to prioritize. You might say, as you have, these all look like things that I might in fact do with this client. The question is asking, which of them do you do first? Right, right. And you know, if, so now I'm thinking like, so what should I do first? Honestly, if if what this client was reporting to me in therapy was that she was spiraling and uh, like, that that if she if her major complaint was her emotional state, then maybe I need to reconsider and think think more about that answer choice. But what this question says she's telling me is that she spent the night in the emergency room and is afraid to go home because her assaulter knows where she lives. Um, so now that I'm looking closer at that piece. Um, she's already been to the emergency room. So she's been evaluated by a doctor. So she's obviously uh, uh, stable. If they're letting her go home, she's she's stable. She's okay. She probably got a rape kit done. Um, so I actually don't think getting to the police is necessary, necessarily the first thing we should do. Um, so I'm okay. going to strike out D. That's not what we should do immediately. Um, we should also not, uh, answer C is develop the client's trauma narrative of the event to desensitize emotional impact. I'm going to say, you know what, despite the fact that that my trauma knowledge is not exactly where I wish it was, um, I'm going to say I don't think that that's the first thing we should do in this situation. So then I'm looking at, I'm comparing A and B. And B is evaluate the client's support systems to identify a safe place for the client to stay. I am leaning towards B right now because what the client is telling me is the most urgent part of her response is that she's afraid to go home because her assaulter knows where she lives. She's not telling me, for example, um, that she doesn't feel like she can drive because she's so uh, deep in in flight, um, you know, a flight response. She's she's not endorsing that like her feeling out of control is the most distressing thing to her in the moment. She's saying she's afraid to go home. Um, so I think, I think that that is probably the first thing you should do in the crisis situation is to make sure your client is safe. Um, so I'm going to go with B evaluate the client support systems to identify a safe place for the client to stay. You know, I like to ask you, how confident are you? Scale of one to 10. Yeah. Um, this one, I, oh boy, I'm going to, I'm going to say an, an eight, eight and a half. Okay. Well, listen, you keyed in on the right terms here and the right way of thinking about it. So this is asking, which would you do first? And then just as you were saying, reestablishing feelings of control, that's great. And that might be something you do in the process of therapy, but right now she's scared to go home. And that is the most urgent need to give her a safe place to stay. And for that reason, B is indeed the correct answer. Yes. And when you see items like this that ask, what would you do first? What would you do next? If you see items that, that give away, as this one does, that this is a crisis management question, you should immediately go to thoughts of protecting the client's immediate safety, protecting the immediate safety of uh, others around that client if the client is potentially a danger to others. 
here the client's not a danger to others. Here the client is potentially in danger. And so you take steps to address that immediate physical potential danger to the client before anything else. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you, for as much as there is valid criticism, a lot of it from me, of these exams, when you look at items like this that are crisis management questions, when you look at questions about legal and ethical compliance, those are the kinds of questions that I'm okay with us as clinicians being tested on. When you look at clinical exams more generally, there are all kinds of questions on clinical exams that, that aren't this, that aren't crisis intervention, that aren't legal, that aren't ethical in nature, that are more about uh, assessment, diagnosis, treatment planning, particular interventions, and the like. And those can speak to the underlying knowledge base that an examinee has for the profession. But I got to tell you, I don't see and I have never seen how if I, as a therapist, use, let's say, CBT, mm -hmm. how does it improve public safety for me to know middle stage interventions <laughs> from Bowen therapy? <laughs> right? That's a really good point. <laughs> and the way that the clinical exams are sort of structured by topic, I could get every single question about crisis intervention and ethics incorrect and still pass my test if I get enough of the other stuff about assessment and diagnosis and treatment planning. I could get, if I get all those right, I could still pass my test. Is that true? Yeah. That doesn't seem okay. <laughs> Wait. It's good to know that I'm not crazy <laughs> to say this. Wait, yeah, like, no. How in the world does that protect public safety? Like a question like this, a question like the one that you've addressed well here, I see how that is deeply relevant to practice, how, you know, if, if we don't address that client's immediate safety need, that we could be actually doing harm, not totally. just failing to help, but doing harm. Totally. Like I 100% get that. Yeah. If I don't know the particular verbiage of a model of treatment that I don't use, and I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I agreed. And you're so what you're saying is that like I could absolutely strike out on every question that has to do with uh, uh, suicide assessment or safety planning or um, uh, uh, like what legally what I'm required to do, like what I need to do in a given situation. Um, I. I could get all of those questions wrong. And as long as I know enough about like CBT and Bowen therapy and everything else, then I can still get a license. Correct. Oh, no, that doesn't see. Wait, does the public know about this? No. And see, <laughs> passing or failing these tests, typically it's not about your subscale scores. It's just about whether your overall score hit the cutoff for passing. If you are at or above the cutoff for that version of the test, congratulations, you are now a licensed professional. If you missed the cutoff, then I'm sorry, you don't get to get licensed at this time. You have to wait a few months and then try again. 
This is making me deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> Wait, this is wow. Are you kidding me? I'm that not does kidding not you. seem okay. Part of what I look at as my role, part of what we are trying to do with this podcast is help people to get through a deeply problematic barrier to licensure. Mm. And so we'll talk more in other episodes about some of the problems with these exams. If you're preparing for your test, to be fair, I don't know how deeply you care about like whether an exam is necessary for public safety. Like you've got to take it if you want to get a license right. and that's just kind of how it is. That's the structure. But once you're through and once you get licensed, I hope that you will become active in deeply and meaningfully questioning, why do we do it this way? This is an odd process if the intent is to protect public safety. There is very limited evidence to suggest that somebody who passes their license exam is actually then safer in practice than somebody who doesn't. That seems like the kind of thing that exam developers and licensing boards should have gathered some evidence in support of by now, since these exams have been in use for more than 50 years since the first version or first iteration of what is now the EPPP in psychology. But these exams have never shown, never, ever, ever shown any predictive validity for safety in independent practice, which is the very thing that boards say that they use these exams to assess. That's a problem, right? I will have more to say about this in future episodes, but for right now, if you are interested in learning more about how to get ready for your exam, go to bencaldwelllabs.com. We have programs for the California MFT Counseling and Clinical Social Work Law and Ethics exams, and we have a program for the California MFT Clinical exam. We may be adding programs in the future as well. So if your test isn't on that list, it's still worth a look. Go to bencaldwelllabs.com and see what we might have for you there. I am Ben Caldwell. On behalf of Carrie Weta, thank you once again for joining us. We'll see you again soon.